The Cosmic Adverse Podcast, written and read by Nick Perry. Chapter 7, Ignition. Samuel Kagi, the keeper of the wind, the ruler of all Cornelia, god to all wind canta users, sat at the end of a long conference table in a state of blind boredom. He watched as one of his army's generals, Pil Sago, waved his arms in front of a battle plan posted vertically for all to see. The general was excitedly going over the battle plans he and his underlings had painstakingly built to rescue the Keeper's daughter from the deepest of reaches of Tandros's volcano. The Keeper of the Wind had no stomach for violence, and he most definitely did not enjoy sending an army of highly trained, expensive soldiers into the thick of actual battle. To Sam, as only his closest associates called him, war was trivial. Nevertheless, he had seen his fair share of violence over the generations. The other Keepers had seen to that. No, Sam was more interested in progress. He believed that it was the job of the Keepers to manage their subjects to maximize their value, but his compatriots had much less ambitious goals in mind for their subjects. In the time since the Creator had bequeathed him the honor of Keeper, Sam had built a sustainable government based on the will of the people and healthy competition. He had set up a parliamentary government, a sound banking and financial system, and put Cornelia on the forefront of technological progress. But now... In this room, Sam Okagi was planning all-out war with this bull-headed neighbor to the north. He didn't like it. The keeper leaned back in his specially designed chair. Two half-moons had been cut out of either side of the chair, just large enough for the keeper's sprawling ivory wings to pass on either side of the chair without much discomfort. That aspect of being keeper had always perturbed him. The man was medium height and thin. His hair, once full of blonde volume and youth, had been reduced to splotches of gray and black buzzed about his scalp. He wore wire-thin glasses that seemed to magnify his already intense eyes. The man had let age get the better of him. That's the price of love, he had to remind himself on more than one occasion. He had given himself completely to the love of his life, and he would suffer the moral end like so many others in Nevera. It was kind of a relief for him, however— Before he had met his wife and soulmate, Sam had plans to find what lay at the end of time itself. His strategy for doing so was a good one. Rule of law and order provided stability, not that the immortal keeper of the wind need worry about trivialities of life and death. He needed something to pass the time. While the other keepers were off killing each other's followers and poorly playing games of enmity, Samuel had built himself a cozy keyboardum that ran on pure logic, and that had comforted him for a while at least. Generations would come and go, fashion styles in and out, good and evil trading people like baseball cards. It was all very orderly, and Samuel eventually grew tired of it. It wasn't until Alma came into his life that Sam found the spark, that fire in his belly that gave his whole life meaning. He was sure that the others lacked this pure, positive passion. Samuel reflected that he had experienced enough of the world to know that it was too much for anyone to see it through to the end. But all that changed with Alma. Sam met his would-be wife at one of those regal galas that the elite class seemed to love so much. He would bestow the honor of his wings to any combat veteran, member of the upper echelons, or member of the parliament. The three groups often overlapped, which saved on his need to disperse that special canta upon his subjects. That night, he had met her, and she had been radiant, and he fell in love almost immediately. It was an emotion that overcame the Keeper for the first time, and he wallowed in its glory. Tonight, he wore his favorite casual denim and an ink-colored turtleneck. No one else seemed to notice what he liked to think of as his impeccable style. 
while the current trend amongst the Cordelian wheat elite had been to wear conservative coverings with flamboyant attire, both in public and in the privacy of their homes, Samuel sported a fashion style that had proven to be timeless. The tides of fashion always seemed to be slightly adrift. Samuel often wondered if the mirrors that people used in their homes reflected the delusional ideal, or if the people who bought into fashion trends had just executed them poorly. The animated general at the end of the conference table continued his excited flailing. Each of the four keepers held to their own style of ruling over their subjects, that's for sure. Samuel believed that the others, while notable in their extreme differences, seemed to work. Well, mostly work, that is. While the Keeper of the Wind favored balancing human cooperation and competition, the others had slightly different ideas. Tandro seemed to enjoy ruling over a bunch of backwoods barbarians with his petty dictatorial tendencies. Samuel knew exactly what sort of weird fetishes the Scorian Thronesman entertained himself with, and the Winged Keeper wished he could forget. Any treaties that Cornelia had with Afrit included clauses that limited large Cornelian caravans from meeting with the Africian locals. It was as if the Firefly wanted to keep his tribal subjects stunted. Tandros was sitting on what could potentially be the largest untapped resource of labor and raw material in all of Nevera, and yet the Bullman kept it all to himself. Samuel often lamented this fact. He had made it the priority of Cornelia to enter into contractual arrangements with the other keeperdoms to ensure greater cooperation. Samuel believed, and rightly so in his experience, that greater cooperation led to less bloodshed. He had seen it played out time and time again. While the other three couldn't even figure out their territorial boundaries, Cornelia was busy outpacing them in technological and financial innovation. One day, Samuel thought to himself, Nevera and its inhabitants will no longer need to draw a canta to get by. He was preparing Cornelia to lead the charge when that day arrived. Mr. Kaki always wondered if the keeper Tandros was playing dumb for the long term as well. Samuel knew that the best way to outsmart the competition was flipping its value proposition. Maybe the keeper of the flame wasn't as stupid as he made made out to be. That question often kept the keeper of the wind up late at night. While the keepers were immortal, they were far from infallible. At least the creator saw fit to place the keeperdom of the wind on the opposite corner of the world from that bitch Clermela, Fervenza, and Malin, Samuel thought to himself. While Tandros was stupid, he wasn't chaotic like her. The keeper of the water took Samuel's philosophy of healthy competition to the extreme. Her people lived like rats compared to the Cornelians. Between her and the mountain man's completely hands-off approach to governance, it was no wonder that Cornelia suffered from a significant and problematic immigration problem. Some of it was positive. Nevera needed better integration of its people. But on a more personal note, Samuel wouldn't have met his wife had it not been for this wave of immigration. The love of his life was the offspring of Malin and Trauber elites, if such a status could exist in those keeperdoms. She was a rare bird for sure. A mix of races and people. An internal clash of Kanta and Keeper. And the Keeper of the Wind had fallen in love with that satisfying mix of headstrong Trauber and survivor Malin attitudes. The thoughts of the ever-changing nature of the world, despite its Keeper's attempts to maintain the status quo, brought a smile to Samuel's lips, which had heretofore been pursed like he had just bit into a lemon. The other generals and parliamentary representatives at the table had noticed this smile and looked to the Keeper with a mix of curiosity and confusion. The general who had been flailing about this entire time had noticed the keeper's smile and stopped his presentation. He now stood at attention, waiting for the keeper to make a remark. 
The keeper thought that now was as good a time as any to lay into the general. If anything, the guy had given the keeper time to collect his thoughts and to reflect back on the ebb and flow of the world, which Sam hadn't done in far too long. The keeper wiped away his smile as he spoke. I only need to know three things about your plan. The general's nervousness became visibly apparent to the keeper. The others who sat at the table within the zone held within themselves an air of uncertainty so palpable that the conference room seemed heavier as a result. One, who will be leading this charge? Two, when will you be deploying the troops? And three, when will you have Aaron back in Karna? Mr. Kagi looked at the general standing before him through the thin framed glasses. The general answered, One, I'll be leading the ground assault through for... Samuel hand up, held up a hand as if to say, Too much, man. I'm only looking for the big picture. The general swallowed and continued. General Snell will lead the ground assault. The general looked to the nodding man who sat on Samuel's left side about halfway down the table. The keeper shot the man a quick glance before returning his attention to the man standing at the front of the room. What was that general's name? Samuel remembered it began with an S. Sang? No. Song? No. Oh, yes, now he remembered. General Pilsago, first in his class at the academy. The blonde-haired general, who Samuel now recalled as Sago, continued. The 4th and 5th Air Brigades are mobilizing as we speak. The initial assault will begin in three days' time. The preceding march to Mount Vor is ex- The keeper again raised his hand. He never liked the word expected. He only wanted to know what will happen. Under his leadership, the Cornelian government accomplished something or nothing. No in-betweens for Sam Okagi. He lowered his hand and the general continued. We will assault the volcano within two weeks after initial conflict. Why two weeks? The keeper asked sharply. We expect... There will be heavy resistance from the Africian military. The keeper of the flame has amassed a sizable army that poses a significant stumbling block for our troops. The keeper thought this over for a moment. Tandros had built an army? Doubtful. More than likely, he had sent cronies on a hunt for April-bodied boys and men. They probably went tribe by fly-ridden tribe to gather the men. There was no doubt that the Crimson Army could be larger than Cornelia's Wind Waker army in sheer numbers, but Tandros's troops were untrained and very likely to do little more than serve as a barrier between the Wind Wakers and the Crimson Saramage. Ephorations were savages, all of them, except for those Saramage. It was one of Tandros's small miracles as a keeper. The elite guards in Tandros' army served as a true stumbling block of the Wind Waker army. Samuel twirled his finger in a circular motion to tell the general to continue. The blonde-haired Saga swallowed and fixated on the keeper's sharp blue eyes. The current status of the volcano's defenses are unknown. Again, another misstep for the general. This operation, and more importantly this presentation, was proving to be a career-limiting move for the poor guy. If there was another thing that Samuel hated from his inferiors, it was uncertainty. The keeper stood up and leaned over the conference room table. If it's uncertain, then why are you so wrapped with sending our people into that jungle? The keeper said, his voice rising with each word. The general was visibly shaken by the keeper's line of questioning. Sir, we know the numbers of their army. We won't know the strength of their army at the volcano until we arrive on the scene. The keeper slammed his fist on the conference table as he stood, his alabaster wings extending behind him. When he was upset, Samuel's wings often performed this action with great fanfare. They made his physical self seem larger than life, as if his personality needed any help. This is not what we do, Samuel screamed, his fist still resting on the conference table. Maybe if we were savages like the African keeper, but I don't see you using fire, Ganta. Do you, General? 
Sagwa swallowed and shook his head. No, you've supposedly earned those wings on your back because you've proven yourself worthy of the status inferred by it. But now you come to me with a half-assed plan, spewing bullshit for the past keepers know how long, flailing your fucking arms and those wings like you were having a fucking seizure. Your plans are flawed, your ideas are worthless, and you've wasted not just my time, but the time of everyone at this table. And most importantly, you've brought Tandros one step closer to killing my one and only daughter due to your waste of time. Do you want future generations to know that you were the one who couldn't bring Aaron back from the filthy hands of that scorian asshole? No! So go back to your fucking drawing board and make it better. Find out what plans a Crimson Army has, or will most likely have, when we make landfall and hand their rosy asses to them on a silver platter. Do you hear me? The general had been nearly reduced to tears when he nodded in violent agreement. Samuel sighed at the admission and relaxed his wings behind him before sitting down. The room lay silent for what seemed like an eternity as the keeper composed himself. It was the man to Samuel's right, the keeperdom's prime minister, who broke the silence. Go the vaunt. Cordelia's prime minister was a tall, lanky individual who had served as the keeper's most trusted post for seven years. His hair was far grayer than the keeper's, which gave the man an air of quiet intelligence. He most definitely did not share in Samuel's penchant for theatrics. Next year was an election season, and the prime minister, who also led the Cornelian Commonwealth Party, was hoping to sweep them. How the kidnapping was handled would surely make or break the party's strategy. The commoners, as they were often called by both supporters and dissenters alike, held to the motto, People, Keeper, and Country. The opposing Rickscunsency Party, commonly referred to as the Keepist, would surely try to appeal to the masses by rallying behind the Keeper and his daughter. For the Keeper and his subjects was their motto. Samuel had always regarded the Keepists and their motto as little more than an attempt to brown their noses. Keeper generally favored the commoners' governments, but he would be lying if he said that the keepers never massaged his hubris. My keeper, Vaughn spoke with an unwavering, mild-mannered tone that belied the intelligence of the man speaking. Samuel looked at the man who had done what few others in the generations of men had accomplished, earned the keeper's respect. Yes, Goth, the keeper replied in a similar tone as the prime minister. If the man to the keeper's right had mastered one thing, it was how to calm the keeper using only those two words. Though flawed, it is possible to implement this plan with a few key assumptions. The keeper perked up at this statement. What would you say? The prime minister explained himself. It's evident that the initial assault will be successful. Our men, though outnumbered four to one, are capable of handing apparition odds of two to one if pitted against the Crimson Ceremage and seven to one against untrained tribes, tribesmen. It is my assumption that losses will be minimal in the pivotal attack at Faron Valley. The momentum by which the army continues its assault on Afarit will be swift. The general's estimations are incorrect. The assault should last no more than four weeks from Faron to Mount Vor. The army should then reclaim the princess, your daughter, and withdraw in a matter of days. Regardless of the number of untrained Afrin inhabitants that are placed on the front lines, Font stated with seasoned confidence, the Scorian army will suffer significant losses. Our losses, on the other hand, should remain minimal. This is assuming, of course, that there are no outliers present in the statistical odds. You mean, help from outside forces? The keeper understood the prime minister's explanation. 
from a strict regression analysis based on prior Cornelian military victories, any academic exercise would point toward a total victory. I fully expect outside forces, though not in the traditional sense, Vaughn continued. I expect, based on the current economic and diplomatic conditions of Navarra, that the other keepers will not be rushing to the side of Tandros's army. However, Tropper and Clermela will be interested in reclaiming some of their respective disputed territory. The Keeper of the Flame should expect that the mountain range that separates Afrit and Trauber will shift westward in the mountain man's attempt to expand his deserted wastelands. Clermela will unleash a tidal torrent of flood of what little remains of the border between Afrit and Malin. This is all to be expected, as both keeperdoms have had an onset of tough economic conditions. That is not what concerns me. The Prime Minister finished his analysis and slid toward the back of his chair. The man in black, Samuel said as if reading the Prime Minister's mind. The others around the table shifted in their chairs, uncomfortable at the mention of such an infamous epithet. Yes, the man in black, Vaunt agreed. It's no secret that the room at the top of the Black Spire has remained empty for quite some time. The creator has had no need to grace us with his presence. However, the man in black has made no attempts to hide his meddling in the affairs of both keepers and men. You think that Tandros has employed the services of the Black Spire's attendant? Samuel asked Vaunt. The keeper's eyes lit up with in a neon blue look of incredulity. No, my keeper, Vaunt said. It's the Black Spire's attendant who has employed the services of the Scorian throne. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Cosmic Adverse Podcast. You can find us online, CosmicAdverse.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at Cosmic Adverse. I wanted to take a, a little bit of a moment and talk to you about leaving reviews on iTunes. I'm happy to say that we've received our first two reviews, and they were overwhelmingly positive. Uh, it looks like our first reviewer came on September 15th from uh, Cube Dweller 7814 he says uh, that this is a great audiobook in the form of a podcast. Characters and the themes and stories all seem to be really thought out. Thank you very much, Cube Dweller. I hope you uh, hope you continue to listen to the podcast. Uh, second review came in as four stars from a Buttercup one zero one six. Uh, it says here the author was a little iffy on the first few episodes, but the last one was really great. I think they're talking about uh, about the chapter six Moira on this one. He sounds like he's really hitting his stride, and I can tell that it, we're in for a fun long ride. Well, thank you very much, Buttercup. I hope you uh, also subscribe and continue and tell all of your friends and family about the podcast. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for downloading this week's episode. And again, feel free to go to your favorite podcast directory of choice, whether that's iTunes or TuneIn or Stitcher, um, and give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. Uh, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. Other than that, Talk to you next week.